Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Publicity is the soul of justice. It keeps the judge himself while trying under trial. Where there's no publicity, there's no justice. That's how the 18th century philosopher Jeremy Bentham put it in a passage cited by the Supreme Court of Canada when they affirmed the open court principle, which is anybody can come watch the courts in action. Anybody can access court documents and evidence. We don't try people in secret. That is how we keep the justice system itself honest. But not every courtroom follows those rules. There are plenty of adjudicative bodies that make serious rulings on matters of public interest that the public rarely hears about. Self-regulated professions, pharmacists, psychologists, lawyers, real estate agents, accountants, stockbrokers, and doctors. All of them have committees and tribunals that hold hearings and pass judgment on their members when accusations of professional impropriety are made. They hear evidence and they punish wrongdoers. They kick people out of their professions entirely. And often, there is no public record. I mean, if there is a public record, it can be incredibly vague. This professional was punished for something. We won't say exactly what. Sometimes those records of professional misdeeds are temporary. They vanish from the internet, leaving no trace that anything at all happened. 
That happens with doctors. The people who can have total invasive access to our bodies. They can do wrong, get caught, get punished, and have the whole thing scrubbed from public sight. Which makes things really hard for reporters. When journalists do want to cover a story about professional malpractice, the institutions that hold all of the information are notoriously difficult. They are opaque. They are evasive. They disclose very little, and they will even fight to keep things secret. That might be changing thanks to my guest today and to the publication that fought for his story. Journalist Michael Lista, who has written for us before here at Canada Land, he recently published a major story in Toronto Life magazine about a horrifically dangerous doctor. It's a story about greed and money. It's a story about women's bodies being violated without their consent, their lives endangered by a revered and respected doctor who they put their complete trust and faith in. And it's a story about how the system allowed that abuse to go on for years. It's a story that you almost never heard. In order to tell that tale, Toronto Life had to pry information from the Ontario College of Physicians and Surgeons by legal force. And in doing so, they might have set a precedent that will change things for everybody. Quick warning before we begin that today's episode contains graphic descriptions of medical malpractice. If you'd rather not hear that, maybe skip this one. Michael Lista joins me here in Toronto in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Timothy Granger, Susan Yu, Nikita Urazbev, Nolan Keller, Ryan Sieber. Alberto Zambenedetti, Craig Bela, and Dave. My name is Dave. I'm an urban planner from Kitchener, and I support Canada Land because I feel it's the only news source that tells me what's actually going on in the country. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. 
We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Hi, Michael. Hi, Jesse. Michael, you wrote that it's easier to see the evidence against a murderer than the evidence against a doctor in Toronto. You and I are going to discuss in detail your fight and Toronto Life's fight to get that evidence against this doctor. But first, what is the CPSO? The CPSO, or the College of Physicians and Surgeons, is the governing body which regulates doctors. It's one of the few regulatory bodies where a profession gets to regulate itself. So it is run by doctors for doctors to sort of regulate the state of the field. You know, they take complaints from patients who feel like doctors have had an issue with their practice. And then they have a number of committees which are empowered to investigate those complaints. One is the the sort of less serious complaints committee. The other is the discipline committee, which is much more powerful. It has sweeping powers to investigate doctors, to apply for search warrants to their clinics, to their homes, and ultimately, if they feel like it's justified, as it was in the case of Dr. Shuin, to revoke their license to practice medicine in Ontario. Ultimately, they can decide who gets to be a doctor. That's it. Can you run us through the story itself? Like, what were they trying to hide? What was the doctor's governing organization, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario? What were they fighting so hard to keep from you? So about a year ago, a doctor named Paul Shuin had come before the discipline committee of the College of Physicians and Surgeons. And we had noticed that as what happens when a doctor comes before the discipline committee and has his license revoked, that there was a sort of summary of what Shuin was found to have done. And what Shuin had done was that he had been a quite respected OBGYN and gynecological oncologist for about 30 years. He started working at the North York General Hospital in the late 1980s. He was a teacher at the University of Toronto. We spoke to a number of his colleagues, widely respected in his profession. But what it turns out he was doing, among other things, was that by his own admission within the last few years, he had been secretly inducing his at-term patients on weekends without their consent using a very dangerous drug called misoprostol in order for them to deliver on weekends. Because of this weird peculiarity in the OHIP billing structure, he could bill OHIP a higher rate for having delivered them on the weekends. Let me see if I understand that. (laughs) So these are patients of his who are at term, they're ready to deliver. And so he could charge more money to OHIP, he would secretly, like there are drugs that you have to take the drug. How how are these women secretly induced to deliver on weekends when he could bill higher? So what normally happens when a woman at term is induced is that they usually your doctor will schedule the induction with the hospital, right? And it is a process that is highly monitored, highly controlled. It happens fairly slowly. I believe it's usually with an IV drip. So you can sort of control the drug as it's being administered. Yeah, and it's like I was witness to it being very, very painful, like these medically induced contractions. It's, it is. You know, and this would happen without these women's consent. Right. So what Shuin was doing is that he would take call on the weekend. So he would be available to his patients. But what he was also doing was that he would see them for sort of like one last appointment at his private clinic, his outpatient clinic, which wasn't far away from the North York General Hospital. 
And then what he was doing is that he was taking this pill called misoprostol, and he would, without telling his patients, cut it up a little bit, very unscientifically, and he would insert it without telling them into their vaginas. So misoprostol is not a drug that's used by North York General Hospital to induce labor. That's for a number of reasons. The first is misoprostol was not invented as an induction pill. It was actually invented as an ulcer medication. And like many drugs, it was found to have other effects. And those include when you give this ulcer drug to an at-term patient, it will cause the softening of the cervix and contractions. Now, let me say that it is used as essentially one half of a pharmacological abortion, right? So you take this pill with another pill. If you don't intend to keep your baby and you'll have an abortion. But if you want to keep your baby and, and deliver at term, misoprostol is an incredibly dangerous drug to give a woman. It has these horrible possible side effects, which include a torn uterus, which can require a hysterectomy, which would mean you would be infertile for the rest of your life. And it could also kill the mother and it could kill the baby. Did he? Because of the nature of the way Shuin was doing these inductions, it's really hard to tell who was even affected by it. So the way it would work is that Shuin would give this pill, and then all of a sudden these women would start showing up in these very odd high numbers to the labor and delivery ward in rapid labor, a certain kind of labor called precipitous labor, which means it's happening way too fast. Uh -huh. The contractions are coming too quickly. There can be this condition called hyperuterine stimulation where, again, the contractions are coming too quickly. They're lasting too long. These are like very common signs of having been induced. But when the nurses would look at the patient charts, there was no evidence of induction. Like when you give any pill to a patient, it has to be marked in the chart. Because he was doing this in secret. Right. He wasn't. T he, and but the so, nurses could see like this is what's going on. This, this it doesn't make induced. sense. And what's even weirder is what we found out is that a statistically improbable high number of Shuin's patients were delivering on the weekend when he was on call and could charge the higher rate. We found out that number was 46 percent. So you don't need to be a statistician to know that that's deeply fishy. So what would happen is that not once, not twice, but three times nurses found the remnants of these powdery half-dissolved pills in the vaginas of Shuin's laboring patients. The first time the pill was thrown out. The second time the nurses kept it and the hospital didn't test it. It was only after the third time that this was found that it triggered an investigation. The pill was tested. It was found to be misoprostol. But what his medical investigator later said was that it's impossible to know how many women were affected and what the outcomes of those deliveries were because he didn't keep very good notes. Well, hold on a second, because you also write that this was financially motivated mm -hmm. and there's like a quota or a cap. He's uh, allowed to deliver 50 babies a month. Mm -hmm. He was like busting that cap. So we're talking about a lot of babies. You're saying that some the side effects go up to death. So I understand he's not going to record his own crimes, but... We know the names of the women and the babies, right? Like the, We uh, don't know their names. You don't know the names no. of the women? Who's, why wouldn't those records exist? So they do exist. When we sort of petitioned the CPSO for all of these records, wanting to see all of the evidence that was entered against Shuin, it launched this very long eight-week battle with the CPSO where we had to get our lawyer involved. We had to file a formal motion with the CPSO to see this stuff. Shuin's lawyers were allowed to try and block access to a number of the exhibits. So was the lawyer for the CPSO, which is a sort of bizarre thing for us. But one of the things that was released to us 
was a whole bunch of patient data. But redacted from that in the name of patient confidentiality were any of their names or distinguishing details. And that was done in the name of patient safety. I totally understand that. That's patient confidentiality. But what you're saying is, whether you know their names or not, there is a chance that he killed people and we don't know that for sure? So we asked the North York General Hospital afterwards if there was any larger investigation that they had done to determine who Shuin had induced against their will, whether there were any negative outcomes from that, including sort of anything that could include death of the mother or the baby. And what the hospital said was they did an investigation, the one that triggered the loss of Shuin's license. But after that, they also reviewed a number of years worth of documentation, is how they put it, and couldn't find any negative outcomes. Now, the problem for us was always, if you're just looking at the documentation, is it possible to determine you know, whether or not these women were induced or whether any subsequent bad outcome could be attributed to Shuin's misdeeds? I don't know the answer to that. This is a horror story. I'm just trying to get my head around this. So you've got a doctor who how much money? Like, what, what's the difference to him in delivering a baby on a Wednesday or delivering it on a Saturday? So if you deliver on a Wednesday, you can charge OHIP 400 something dollars. But if you deliver that same baby on the weekend, you can deliver about 700 something bucks. So, so the difference is about $250. He which would is, endanger their lives and put them into these painful forced labors for a couple hundred bucks. I guess it adds up. I think it does add up. We know that in the 2015-2016 fiscal year, Shuin did more deliveries than anyone else at North York General, about 700. About half of those were on the weekend, right? So do the math, it does add up. But what was startling for me in this story is that, you know, I do a lot of crime reporting and you don't often come across a story where you you can actually see what one person thinks another person's life is worth. Yeah. And by shooing endangering these people's lives for 250 bucks, it's sort of like the closest thing you get to like one human's appraisal of another. I mean, the guy's already a doctor. He's making a lot of money. It's hard to get your head around the, the motive here. Why did he need the, this cash so badly? So in some of the documents that we found, what Shuin himself would say at the time to his superior, who was the chief of obstetrics at, at North York General, that chief was concerned about the volume of Shuin's deliveries. He was exceeding the cap. It was making for unsafe conditions at the labor and delivery ward. It was also sort of a budgetary issue. Because every weekend you got these women coming in who are like right. giving birth in 30, 30 minutes right. and, and with high-risk deliveries. When the hospital's already short-staffed. And they're all coming from this one doctor. Right. And so what Shuin said was that, you know, I've just gone through this divorce. When he was, I think he was 65. Uh-huh. I've just gone through this divorce. I got taken to the cleaners. That's why I've been doing all this. And this is, he's admitted to this is stuff he did. He's confessed. Yeah, and he later did confess to his medical examiner, his chief investigator. He said, yeah, I've been doing it. No, women didn't know. I've been doing it for years. You know, he said the reason was not for the money. He said the reason was he was helping these women. Uh He was trying to get around the sluggish, red tape-laden bureaucracy of Canadian The the bureaucracy of of (laughs) carrying a child to, to term? Right. Like, the argument was... When you book an induction, you know, sometimes the hospital's too busy. So, you know, sometimes you have to, they'll rebook you or they'll cancel it. And it's just a huge pain in the butt. This way, you know, we get things done. It's on time. It's on schedule. The baby will get delivered. And his outcomes are better than anyone else's is, you know, is sort of what he would say. So, Michael, there's like 
by your account here, like smoking gun evidence, they're finding the a pill in these women. Even before this, there were warning signs with this guy, pretty alarming ones. Yeah. So what we found out was that, again, it was only after we sort of won our fight for disclosure with the College of Physicians and Surgeons that there had been two previous complaints that were found to be credible against Paul Schuen that were directly related to his problem with consent. Well, what were they? So one was in 2008. It was a pregnant marketing professional. She went to North York General. Her OBGYN was not Schuen. It was someone else. And her labor was progressing slowly. Finally, after many hours, her OBGYN sort of went off her shift and Shuin took over mm -hmm. as the doctor on call. And according to this marketing professional, we managed to find her and speak to her. Shuin was just right from the minute go, he was in a hurry. You know, he had another scheduled C-section to get to. The labor was progressing too slowly. He was upset that she had been given an epidural, which was slowing things down. And so what Shuin did was that without seeking her consent, he performed an episiotomy on this woman, which is a surgical technique for enlarging the vaginal opening. And she didn't know. He, did, he didn't ask her. And because she'd had the epidural, and now there's this large incision, she started to shear with every push. And it resulted oh, in God. a really terrible complication that... She's asked us not to go into too much detail about, but what she would say is that the plumbing wasn't working as it was supposed to. And it resulted in horrific damage, which again, she had never consented to. It wasn't in her birth plan. And so she was so devastated that she lodged a complaint with the College of Physicians and Surgeons. And another committee, not the discipline committee, which is the more serious one, the complaints committee, took it up, and it found that Schuin had not secured patient consent, which, according to Canadian legislation, is required, uh -huh. right? It's not optional. Like, it's required that your doctor secure your consent for any intervention. So they found against him? They found against How him. How long ago was this? This was in 2009. Now, here's the thing, is that today, the college maintains web pages of all of its doctors, uh, all the doctors who are certified to practice medicine in Ontario. And since 2015, any complaint that comes out of the complaints committee where there's a finding against a doctor, all of those now are public. And you can look up your doctor, you can go on his web page, and you, can, you would be able to see this. But that was only starting in 2015. So in 2009, those were not public. He was allowed to keep going after it was found that he didn't get consent before doing this? The complaints committee, they found that what had happened did not rise to the level, as far as I can, as far as I understand it, to the level of like, you know, an offense for which he could lose his license. Instead, the remedy was that he receive a caution, which is like a not unserious matter for a doctor to face. And he received a caution and he, he was also sort of given further education and why it's important to secure consent and how he can avoid issues of consent in the future. This is horrifying. And, and the second incident? The second incident uh, is sort of left me flabbergasted. So a few years later, I believe it was 2012, a woman in Schuin's oncology practice came to see him. She had a very rare malignancy called Paget's disease, which is where uh, sort of lesions appear on a patient's vulva. And so she went in to see Schuin. Schuin said, you got Paget's disease. We need to do a partial vulvectomy. And she was, you know, understandably sort of shocked. And she said, you know, she, she was sort of confused. She didn't know what was going on. And Shuin said, listen, we need to do this surgery. 
we should book it. And she said, oh, okay, if that's what you think is best, all right, I'll do it. And they booked it for about a month out. And then Shuin said, in the meantime, if you want more information, as doctors often say, go home and Google it, right? So she did. So she went home and she Googled it. And she found information. We later corroborated this. There are studies about this. That in some cases, Paget's disease can be cured with a cream, right? And so- and either, so, either like a topical cream or a partial vulvectomy. Right. So if you're, if you're her in that moment, yeah. you'd probably want to talk about the cream, right? Yeah. Right. So she goes back and she says- Listen, I, I read that, that, you know, it can be treated with a cream. That's what I want. And Shuin said, you know, in your case of Paget's disease, the cream won't work. We have, to use, we have to do the vulvectomy. And more than that, if you cancel, even though it's a month out, you'll have to pay a $100 cancellation fee. And so even though she was sort of confused and scared, the... She felt like not just her doctor's expertise, but the threat of this $100 cancellation fee led her into doing the surgery. So she did it. And then she woke up to find that not only had Shuin cut off her vulva, but he also cut off her clitoris. What the hell? Yeah. And he, he kept practicing medicine after so that? So she complained. She complained to the CPSO. And again, the complaint was taken up by the complaints committee. And the complaints committee decided that- The, the less serious committee. Right. That there was nothing wrong with Shuin's surgical technique, but again, he hadn't properly secured the patient's consent and informed her of, like, sort of walked her through what the ramifications of the surgery would be. And so again, they issued him a caution. Again, it was about his lack of seeking patient consent. Uh-huh. And then he went on to do this, essentially what's like a huge financial scam, inducing women without their consent for money. Dozens or hundreds of times. Again, the medical investigator could only find that he could definitively say it happened three times because there were only three of those pills that were recovered. But by Shuin's- Three pills, but by the stats about how many of these were weekend births, you could probably infer that there were a lot more than that. By Shuin's admission, he had been doing it for years. Oh my God. All right. You know, my next question was going to be, why the college was, I, I can understand why Shuin would want to hide this from you. And I wasn't sure why the college would want to hide this from you, but I think I have a, an idea of why the college would want to hide this from you. So, yeah, the truth is, is that I, I can't really speak to that. W what I can speak to is the process of what it was like. Well, you don't want to speculate, but it seems like they do have a lot to hide. They had many, many occasions, warnings, points at which they could have taken this guy away from patients and they didn't. They're incredibly exposed by your reporting here. You know, what was odd was that right from the moment that we asked the college for the documents, there was a like a very weird process that sort of ensued. So the way it worked was that, as I sort of mentioned in the story, like I mostly do investigative crime reporting. So I'm dealing a lot with like civil courts and criminal courts. And like, you know, as journalists, we often do complain that like Canadian courts are, are sort of withholding and slow and all that stuff. But like generally, it's actually fairly easy if you know what you're doing to get documents from civil or criminal courts. Sure. I mean, we can't bring recording devices into the courtroom, but after no. somebody's been convicted, we don't right. we don't convict people on secret evidence. No. If somebody's convicted, here's why we convicted them. Yeah. And this guy was convicted by the body that we have to deal with this kind of stuff. Right. So most of the time in civil and criminal cases, you know, you call up the court office, the very helpful people at the court office will say, what are you looking for? You give the file name. They say, come on down, I'll have it for you. Right. This was a very different process. I sort of emailed the 
communications office at the CPSO and said, hey, I'm looking for all the documents that were entered into evidence against Chuan. How did you even know about this story in the first place? Because everything you right. just told me is because you finally won this fight. Not quite. So when Shuin lost his license, for the first time, a public warning about Shuin went live. It was the a summary of the results of the discipline committee hearing After where he lost his license. After all that stuff, right. the public is told. In other words, the first time the public knows that Shuin is a danger to them is on the day he can no longer serve them anyways. Right, right. right. So, you know, I emailed the... CPSO communications office and said, hey, I'd love, I'd like to see the evidence. And very helpful gentleman, the head comms person, he said, okay, w- what you need to do is you actually need to file a, a motion with the CPSO to ask for the documents. And he's like, I'll do it for you. You know, not a big deal. And I said, oh, okay. I'd never had this happen before. Like in, in a murder trial I once reported, I asked them if I could see the exhibits Right. The stuff that's actually entered into evidence. And yeah. they said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Come on down. And they filled a room filled with like forensic material that was found on this murdered man's body. Right. That was easy. Gave me everything. Right. Uh-huh. No problem at all. Absolutely. Go do your job. Th- this I had to enter a formal motion. Right. Mm-hmm. So we did. And then about two weeks later, we get an email back and there are two documents. One is a, f- a formal response to our motion from Schumann's lawyers. And the other is the CPSO's own lawyer's response. And in each, they're partially blocking our access to certain exhibits. And the CPSO people should, like when we're talking about the the, the doctor's college here, in this judicial body, that's the court. Like the court isn't supposed to even have, in a murder case, you might get the defendant mm-hmm. having, you know, an argument as to why you should or shouldn't get certain mm-hmm. information or, or the victims, right? Mm-hmm. They have standing. Mm-hmm. But the court isn't saying, like, they don't have a, a role in the fight. Right. Let me first say I'm not a lawyer. I'm just a lowly crime reporter. But I was trying to figure out, like, what's the corollary in a criminal court to the CPSO's own lawyer asking to block certain exhibits? We were asking for access to their own ability to make judgments about doctors. So having their own lawyer determine whether or not we could figure that out is sort of like the only thing I can think of it is sort of like a judge's own lawyer decide yeah. whether, do you know, like, I, I mean, don't the know court if there is a corollary. To journalists, the court will say to journalists, you know, you can't, there's publication ban on this because this is a minor right. or because this is prejudicial right. before a jury trial or something like that. So the court will stand in the way of a journalist, but not for their own interest. Right. Right. Like it's, it's always on behalf of the law or on behalf of a process, but this right. is, they're an interested party in this. They've got something to hide. They at least have skin in the game. What was their argument? Why were they saying? So the CPSO didn't make an argument. Their document, and it's been a little while since I've looked at it, but what it was was, so Schuin's lawyers filed like a very formal, long, I think it was like 10, 12 pages brief that made sophisticated lawyerly arguments about why we shouldn't get to see it. Mm-hmm. They cited Supreme Court precedent. So they were making an argument as to why we shouldn't see it. And I should mention that they weren't opposing everything. Right? They weren't, weren't opposing all the exhibits, just some of them. The CPSO, what they did was that their lawyer just filed a like a single little page where they just listed the exhibit numbers that they weren't opposed to us seeing and then the ones that they were opposed to us seeing without making any argument. 
Well, how could you argue against that? Because you don't know what's in the ones that you're not getting access to. That's part of the problem. So they would give the exhibit numbers. We're not opposed to these. We are opposed to these. But we didn't always know what was in those exhibits. And we being like, you're not doing this legal work. Like Toronto Life's got your back and, and, right. and now there are lawyers involved in trying to unseal this stuff. Right. So what happened at this point was that I called up the office you know, I forwarded them the email and I was sort of like, okay, here's where we're at. You know, I, I don't know what, what you guys think we should do. I mean, like, what am I supposed to do? I'm not a lawyer. Should I just write back and be like, like, pretty please, can I see these? And they said, well, okay, we'll sort of put our heads together and, you know, see what the best move is. And they decided, they were like, you know, I think the best thing for us is we need to get our lawyer involved. So we did. So a couple weeks later, our lawyer filed a response to both the CPSO and to Shuin's lawyers. Then we waited some more. And then there was another round of responses from Shuin's lawyer. And then another couple of weeks went by. And then another lawyer, an independent legal counsel, came in to sort of weigh in on the whole thing from a sort of dispassionate Representing perspective. Representing who? I guess just the law. It was an independent legal counsel who sort of surveyed the state of the law without any dog in the fight. And it was that independent legal counsel who determined that, you know, what's called the open court principle should apply to the CPSO. Can you tell us what the open court principle is? The open court principle is the one that allows you or me or anybody to go into a court and see for themselves the way the mechanics of justice work. It's like a fundamental principle of democracy. So your argument in this independent counsel is arguing that that same principle should apply to this college of physicians as it would to any other judicial body. Here for me was the part that, you know, why the open court principle with not just the CPSO, but other sort of self-governing bodies, human rights tribunal, the landlord-tenant board, all of whom are sort of quasi-judicial bodies that sort of ostensibly do justice, but don't operate with the same sort of perspicuousness that courts do. Here's why it matters. is because like, I don't want to give the impression that this is like, you know, some great journalistic scalp that we've just got. You know, it's an interesting story, horrifying story that there was this process we had to go through. But here's why it matters. It matters because, you know, Toronto Life could spend the thousands of dollars on getting to see this stuff. But if you were one of Shewin's patients and not a journalist, and you saw on the CPSO website that this guy had this horrifying history where once he had been so so well regarded, you would have had to go through the same process to get all that stuff. Well, even And that is unlikely what you would see, because I've looked at some of these things before, and sometimes you'll see things on, on different bodies as well. The psychologist body, we did a story involving Jordan Peterson where we're trying mm-hmm. to get to the truth about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And you'll often just see they were censured. There was a complaint. We got that story because the patient themselves came forward and gave us the documents. Right. So the governing body just tells you, you know, as little information. So if somebody in the public is like, wow, that's my doctor, I right. want to know the full amount of information. They don't right. have the resources of a Toronto Life to go right. and get that information. Right. And it's not just a sort of a problem with the financials. It's also like a, a problem of democracy that like if doctors get to regulate themselves in this sort of parajudicial body, then they should be required to be as forthcoming as any other court. Sure. Right? And your point is that, you know, we were able to do that, but not everybody. But everybody might might have an easier time because of what you did if this set a precedent. Your editor, Sarah Fulford, in full disclosure, I used to write uh, for Toronto Life, uh, so she was my boss there. She's also a friend. In her editor's letter, she wrote, I hope our little victory will set a precedent. 
for anyone looking for greater transparency from regulatory bodies. The court's ruling can be used to gain access not just to the College of Physicians and Surgeons tribunals, but also to landlord-tenant boards, human rights tribunals, and securities commissions, among other adjudicative bodies. Mm -hmm. That sounds fantastic, but it's a bit speculative. Do you think you set a precedent? Do we know? You know, again, not being a lawyer, I have, I have spoken to a lawyer who says that there is a good chance that it is a precedent or, or can at least be cited as a precedent for people sort of looking to get information from these bodies. You're I still going to have to go through the process of citing the precedent. You're right. going to have to have a lawyer to do that. Like right. It's, it's not like it's public by default. No, I don't think if you're just a journalist trying to get these materials, I don't think you can just say, here's the precedent, boom, you know, let's hand it over. Like a lawyer will still have to argue it. But the way precedent works is that it's just easier every time if someone's done it. So I guess we'll have to wait and see until someone else tries to get this information from either the CPSO or another body. This is all very not good. And, and it's not the only, you know, the Toronto Star just published a series of stories about just what doctors are getting paid. And I think it all kind of speaks to the part that the kind of retail news consumer gets is in, in your story and the Toronto uh, Star's reporting, wow, some doctors are really gaming OHIP. They're really gaming the system and they're, they're getting paid millions of dollars a year and how that kind of warps medicine. And I think that that's probably the first thing that patients are going to be concerned about is to read that there are some doctors who are getting, you know, I think the most was $6 million a year. That's going to be your headline. But but buried under that is is the journalistic story. And, and the Toronto Star had a similar fight. They said they had to fight for five years. Good God. Five years. And this, this was from the Ministry of Health. This was not from yeah. the, the doctor's college. So the, the amount of secrecy around the Canadian healthcare system is pretty shocking for something that affects everybody. Well, you know, one of the things we, I, I agree with you. One of the things we were trying to get is we were trying to get an understanding of how much money Shuin was was making, right? And so, you know, I asked the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care, I was like, is there like a doctor's sunshine list? You know, because I mean, these people are getting paid by us, right? So if you're a police officer making a shit ton of money, you can find out how much it is, right? Is the same thing true with doctors? And they said, well, listen, if you want to find out what any individual doctor makes, you have to you have to send in a freedom of information request, right? And like, you know, magazine writing is, as you know, is like different than newspaper writing. We're like, I can't work on a story for five years, yeah. you know? I would love to, but like that's a that's an infinitely longer process. It's also weird the the College of Physicians like who pays for that? The doctors, their own fees. So it's like a court that's funded by Right. Like is it there to keep the doctors in line and regulate them? Yes, but it also represents them. The CPSO is as a self-regulating body is in this really weird place because Lots of people feel like when they listen to a conversation like this, that the CPSO is this nepotistic body that's just out to protect doctors and and it's unfair and they should be subject to the court like everyone else. But then there's lots of doctors who can sometimes make the opposite complaint that like it's not right that the CPSO is always just it's only ever looking at doctors. They're always out to get us. They don't protect us enough. And so it's sort of like it's in a difficult position that like a court is never in. Like, have you ever heard the complaint like, you know, after someone gets, you know, found guilty of drunk driving? This is so unfair. I paid for this court. Why am I, you know, why why are you sticking it to me with right, my own tax right. dollars? No one says that, right? Yeah, but the arrogance of doctors and the idea that this is their college, I think they have a different sense of ownership or, or entitlement. 
where is this at now? Like, it feels like Shuin should probably face something more stiff than like, okay, now you've got to retire. And I also want to know like what liability and what repercussions there are for the hospital, for the college. Like, what's what's going to happen now? So I just double checked even after the story came out to see if there were any criminal files relating to Shuin with the Ministry of the Attorney General, and there aren't. But, you know, I asked like a detective, like I sort of told her what Shuin did. And then I said, let's just talk about a doctor doing this in the abstract. Forget about Shuin for a second. If a doctor was found to have admitted in the CPSO to inducing women with a drug that could kill them for years for money, is there criminal liability there? And she said, yeah, (laughs) it's assault. Could be assault, I should say. Could be what's called the administration of a noxious substance, which is the date rape charge. And if even one of those mothers or babies died, it could be homicide. So in other words, if you were doing it or if I was doing it, that's the criminal liability we could face. These are horrific crimes had he not been a doctor. Civil liability, I have to wonder, the patients themselves going after him or the the college or the hospital, anything? I have seen murmurings on my Twitter feed, on Facebook, that there are people asking about the possibility of a class action suit. Yeah. But, you know, when I sort of wonder about the practicality of putting together a class for something like that. The problem is like, in many ways, Shuin's misdeeds were a kind of, they're kind of perfect in the sense that like, besides those three individual cases where, where three pills were recovered from women's vaginas, you, you could never really prove that Shuin had done it, right? It's not in the chart. A woman might have a recollection of delivering on a Saturday or a Sunday in a labor that she felt was kind of hard. But like it's sort of in terms of like the sort of forensic evidence you need in order to know that this thing had happened to you. Shuin had engineered it so that it was very hard. To right. Get. Your best evidence would be the, the medical records that Shuin himself would have been responsible for keeping and did not. Right. right. Which and, and he was just keeping all this out. But and, and besides the legal ramifications, the thing that really bothers me is that if you're one of those patients of Shuin's and you think back, you know, 10 years ago to when you delivered your, your you know, your beautiful boy or your beautiful girl, you're going to be haunted by wondering if it happened to you and how close you or your child got yeah. in that infinitely vulnerable moment. Like, you will never know, really, if it happened to you. And that's something that is its own kind of tragedy. And it's utterly disgraceful that that's allowed to happen in a place like this. Without consequence so far for anyone but you and and just the loss of faith in the medical. I mean, you feel so vulnerable. When you're in the medical system for any reason, you're at the mercy of the system and these doctors, and you just defer all judgment to them. Yeah. And to find out that this happened degrades and discredits the whole thing. It's, it's, listen, I, I hear you saying earlier, like, you don't want to take credit. Like, and it's true, like, like, he had already lost his license when your journalism began. We hope that this kind of pays forward and that maybe the next time, I think so much about all the things that are going unreported in this country. Mm. And if you're looking, if you're a young journalist looking for leads, look at the public yeah. statements on, on these colleges and the, uh, these governing bodies, because there's a story for each one. They're all worth looking into. But I think that there's no question that the public is better off for knowing what you've reported. There are other heroes in this story. The nurses. The nurses. Oh, like yeah. they are the frontline heroes who should have been listened to a lot earlier. Oh, I don't often report stories with heroes just because heroism is fairly rare. But like to put your your neck, your career, your livelihood on the line 
to speak up and say something like that. If it wasn't for these nurses, no one, no one would have heard about anything about Paul Schumann except how well respected he had been for so long. I admire them infinitely. And just to clarify, they are the ones who blew the whistle. You know, what had happened was that one of the nurses found the pill and it was on the tip of her latex glove. And for a second, she hesitated and she turned the glove inside out and threw it in the garbage. And then she went and she told her colleagues at, at the nursing station and together they said, you got to go get that glove. Uh-huh. And they did. And by doing so, they put their own careers on the line to do what they felt was right for patients. And just That's heavy, like yeah. raising a flag about a doctor from a nurse's point of view could be bad for your career. This is the the most respected doctor in that labor and delivery ward at that hospital. You know, it's it's going at the king. Some of these doctors are kind of like, you know, they have little fiefdoms. They're sort of unchallenged kings and they go and they lecture and they're respected. They teach in the hospitals and the nurses serve and they, they you know, there's there's kind of a whole... We know about the story of the arrogant doctor. You would hope that this would be kind of some kind of a tonic against that. The one thing I, you know, I want to say is like, I, I don't think that this is in any way indicative of the state of the of the medical world. So many doctors in in Ontario and around Canada are are themselves heroic and put their patients above anything else. But I think the state of that field is not measured by the best doctor. It's measured by how they treat, you know, the most unscrupulous. Mm -hmm. And so I think we should trust them with their own oversight insofar as they're able to find and rein in as quickly as possible someone who is disparaging their name. Again, our medical world is in its own way a miracle. And part of what it means to keep it that way is to make sure that, as you say, sunlight is shining in on these people who are giving it a bad name. Michael, thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jesse. Hey, that's your Canada Land episode for this week. If you liked it, tell somebody who might also like it because Canada Land is something that anybody can listen to for free and a lot of people don't even know it's out there. You can email me with your thoughts about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I do read everything that you send. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com where you can listen to this week's oppo to get up to date on everything you missed about the uh, upcoming election this summer and to find out whether Jen Gerson will be on the air this week or having a baby. She is due. This episode is produced by Kasia Mihailovic and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Listen up. This whole thing exists because people choose to support it. They don't have to, and thousands of them do it anyhow, and we need them to, and we need you to. Support Canada Land at patreon.com slash Canada Land. We'd love to send you some stuff if you do that. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. 
It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.